Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part three of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. And it's a very short prayer. And the reason it's short is because it's scary. It's so much awe to be in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. They could be struck dead. The first temple stood for 410 years, and there were only 12 high priests during that period because they were very righteous and they were blessed with long lives. But in the second temple period that stood for 420 years, there were more than three hundred high priests. Because in these days there was a great spiritual decline and many of these men were corrupted, they bought their office through influence and many of them were struck dead. (laughs) Additionally, if you would change any detail of this incense service, you could die. And with this in mind, it's understandable with all the eyes of Israel awaiting for them with bated breath to come back out. The high priest is concerned not to make the people worry any longer than necessary. The, The anxiety is growing. How long has he been in there? How long has he been in there? How long has he been in there? So they say a very short prayer and then they exit. But he's going to have to re enter again. He's going to have to re enter. The other priests are waiting for the high priest to come out. They have the blood of the bowl. They are not letting it congeal. They're keeping it swirling so it does not harden or congeal. He has to go back in a second time now with the blood of the bowl where he's heaped all the sins of himself, his family, and the priesthood. And he has to go back in and take his finger and sprinkle the blood toward the spot of the Ark of the Covenant of God. It says in Leviticus 16, he shall take some of the bullock's blood with his forefinger, sprinkle it on the east side of the Ark cover. He shall then sprinkle it with his forefinger seven times directly and followed by seven times downward. After he leaves the Holy of Holies in the same manner, he will place the vessel on the golden stand within the sanctuary. Now he enters the Holy of Holies again outside the court. He, the goat that has been designated for Hashim is brought by the lottery. It's It's been selected. He slaughters the animal. He gathers its blood into another vessel. And now he's going to take the vessel containing the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat. He dashes from the blood of the bullock outside the curtain. He puts it in the same spot. The second vessel containing the blood of the sacrificial goat, they're mixed. He goes in a third time carrying the blood of the goat. He enters the chamber like he did before. He sprinkles the blood. So you see how involved this is. You see how blood sacrifice was was all they knew. It was what God told them they had to do. He shall go out of the altar, that is before God. He shall make an atonement. He shall take some of the bullock's blood and some of the goat's blood and place the mixture on the horns of the altar all around, on all four sides for all. Now he returns and that scapegoat's still waiting at the opposite gate, the eastern gate of the temple. He places his hands now on that scapegoat and he prays for all the iniquities of all the children of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, and he heaps them on top of that goat. And he, he all the people are, are, are just in awe and reverence. These are their sins being put on this innocent animal. And then he does a confession over that goat for all 
the people of Israel. And after confessing for Israel, the high priest gives the scapegoat to an individual who's been designated to take it, a warden really, to take it out to the desert. I looked up what scapegoat is in the dictionary. This is where we get the name, scapegoat. A person who is blamed for the wrongdoings, mistakes, or faults of others, especially for reasons of expediency. So this warden of the scapegoat, it's, it's been selected, usually a priest, takes the scapegoat, and there's an elaborate way they do this, but there's a certain bridge and they have to go. And on the way, people are teasing and taunting the goat. They said, especially Babylonians or Alexandrians from Egypt, on the way, they would attempt to get at the goat and they would pull at the goat's hair and they would cry, take our sins away, take our sins away and be off with you, take our sins and go. So they would taunt and tease the scapegoat and pull his hair. Now, it was always said that when Messiah comes, he would be beaten in his face and he would have his beard pulled and plucked out by revelers. And Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So these people are attempting to get at the scapegoat to pull out his hair. Pulling out the beard also of a condemned man before crucifixion was a very common part of the humiliation carried out against the crucified. Historical records of the Jews consistently describe men who were condemned to death and had their beards torn from their faces. In the New Testament, that is fulfilled when Matthew 26 tells us that they spat in Jesus's face and they beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands and for his vestures, they cast lots. So back to the goat, it's going out to the desert and the warden carrying it will have to pass by 10 different booths. He is fasting from all food and all water. He's on his way to a cliff. That's the final destination will be a cliff, but there's 10 booths along the way. And those booths have special positions and they're to make sure he's progressing along the way to encourage him, to accompany him. And it's a 12-mile walk in the hot desert. These come every mile. The last one, though, he has to go two miles and see these red arrows. He has to go clear, clear, clear up on a big cliff. And there is food and water at every booth, but he never takes it. But it's just there just in case. And it, it gives him comfort to know just in case he can't make it, there's food and water. But he, but he would never take it. Okay, finally, he gets all the way up to the cliff with the goat. He arrives at the cliff. He removes the crimson wool that the high priest had tied to the horns of the goat. He divides that crimson wool into two pieces and he reties it again, one side of it, one half of it to the animal's horn, the second to a rock. And so he's able to see when the crimson color on the rock has turned white, he knows that the atonement has been made for Israel's sins. It's the miracle of the crimson wool. And so then he pushes the goat backward with two hands over the cliff and he has accomplished his task. The scapegoat dies. He crashes to his death. And the warden walks back to Jerusalem. He, he can't get the, all the way there. It's too far to walk. It's on the Day of the Atonement. There are certain regulations. He's not allowed to walk that far back. But the crimson wool, another piece of wool, is at the temple. And when that wool also at the temple turned white from scarlet to white, they would know that the sins of Israel had been forgiven for another year. It was called the miracle of the crimson wall at the sanctuary as well as at the actual site. Then the high priest would read from Leviticus 16th in the court of the women to all present. They would read the day of atonement, the bull, the goat, the offerings, the sin, the blood uh, was all brought into the sanctuary. Atonement was made, the burning of the, the bull and the goat outside the walls of the city. Then the high priest would dispose 
of all his bloody garments, and then there'd be a great celebration of thanks. The the Johann Gadol, the high priest, would exit, and he would praise and thank God. He was so relieved for a successful day of atonement. And it says in their prayer book how radiant was the appearance of the Kahan Gadol when he exited in peace from the holy place, like flashes of light that emanate from the splendor of angels. Such was the appearance of the Kahan Gadol. The high priest was radiant. All the sins of Israel and the priesthood were forgiven. They closed the gates at the setting of the sun and the day was over. Now, this was the only way to atone for sins. This is the only life the Jews knew. And it all came to a screeching halt in 70 AD. Why? Because of the destruction of the temple. Jesus Florus, the Roman pure creator of Judea from 66 to 64 AD. He was appointed by Nero. Their wives were friends. He had much antagonism for the Jews. And Josephus records this. He says, this guy, Florus, is primarily to blame for the first Jewish-Roman war. He took office in Caesarea Maritima. We talked about that at the beginning. Florus favored the Greek population over the Jewish population. And there was much disharmony between the two groups. Hellenists sacrificed several birds in earthenware containers at the entrance of the synagogue. That was making the whole building ritually unclean. They go to complain. The Jews complain to Flores. They want a trial. They want redress. But Flores refused to listen to their complaints. He had the petitioners imprisoned, and he angered the Jewish population. He took 17 talents of silver from the temple's treasury in Jerusalem. He claimed it was money for the emperor. The Jewish population began to openly mock Flores. They passed collection baskets around collecting money for poor, poor Flores. Flores was very upset set. He sent a raid to Jerusalem in 66 AD. He sent troops to Jerusalem. They massacred 3,600 Jewish citizens, and this set off an explosive revolution. The uh, arrested individuals were whipped and crucified. Even some of them were Roman citizens. It didn't matter. He was followed in 66 to 70 AD by Marcus Antonius Julianus, but Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, states that the real power at the time was General Vespucian, and then from 70 AD forward, his son Titus. General Titus, Vespucian's son, was the one who ordered the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, burn it to the ground. And we see the the arch of Titus. If you go to Rome in the Forum, you'll see the arch of Emperor Titus, and uh, he becomes emperor when his father dies. But in that arch, you can see the menorah. And and what when they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they took it back to Rome, Italy. Some of the gold and the and the treasures from the temple, and you see them on the relief in the arch of Titus. To this day, it's still there in the Roman Forum. All that was left at the temple were some stones. That's it. It was hazed to the ground. Jesus predicted this in Luke 19 when he said, they will not leave one stone up on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Jews were visited by Messiah and they did not know the time of their visitation. The temple's going to be destroyed. As for these things you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Luke 21, 6. So, when the temple was destroyed, that was the end of the Jewish blood sacrifices. No more animal blood sacrifices. And without no blood sacrifices in the temple, there could be no atonement for Israel's sin to this day. They always said when Messiah comes at the time of Messiah in the messianic era, the Messiah will come and a third temple will be built. 
well jesus said destroy this temple and i will raise it in three days and the jews said well it's taken us 46 years to build how are you going to raise it in three days and jesus said the temple he spoke of was his body his own body is the third temple and his disciples when he was raised from the dead the disciples remembered that he had said that and they believed the scriptures and the word that jesus had spoken because now they're full of the holy spirit and everything's illuminated and making sense jesus was that third temple that ezekiel spoke of two thousand years later they have still not rebuilt the third temple Ezekiel 44 said the gate will remain shut it shall not be open no one will enter by it for the Lord the God of Israel has entered it it will remain shut Jesus Mary's mother was that sealed eastern gate from Ezekiel 44 the ever immaculate virgin at the time of Messiah some biblical and classical rabbinical sources held that all sacrifices will not need to be needed when Messiah comes and that all sacrifices will be annulled in the future of Messiah and when Messiah comes in the future all sacrifices with the exception of one the thanksgiving sacrifice will be discontinued well the thanksgiving sacrifice in greek is called eucharista it means thanksgiving and the fellowship or the peace offering is a thanks offering a sacrificial thanks offering it's optional it's voluntary under the law of moses it's called the thanksgiving offering or the toda the jews call it the toda the thank offering the eucharist the greeks call it it's unleavened bread that was optional that was voluntary that could be communally shared and baruch in second baruch it says that when messiah comes it shall come to pass that at that selfsame time the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high they will eat of it in those years because these are they who have come to the consummation of time when there's manna again eucharist unleavened bread the thank offering the peace offering jesus christ was the final high priest when he finished the work of salvation he sat down he was the final blood on the mercy seat in his ephod there's no ark needed he is the true presence of god mary was the ark that contained him that contained his true presence for nine months he is the divine mercy poured out by god on all people so that we might have a new life in christ we are optionally or voluntarily fed the eucharist the toda sacrifice today daily from his tree of life the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and if you eat from this tree you will live forever now in one biblical generation 40 years there was no more temple the third temple has never been rebuilt jesus is his temple his body and the true presence of jesus would eventually be in tabernacles not in the holy of holies in israel but in tabernacles all over the world in every nation on the face of the earth and i chose these catholic tabernacles because they look like the ark of the covenant but they're catholic tabernacles with the true presence of jesus inside in Catholic or universal new covenant churches you see that the true presence of Jesus there's Mary this is in Chicago this beautiful beautiful Mary with Jesus in her womb and the ark the true there's the mercy seat in the ark the true presence of God Hebrews 10 says it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins consequently when Christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then I said behold I've come to do your will O God as it is written in the book of the scroll when he said above thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are all offered according to the law then he added 
Lo, I have come to do thy will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, then to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I just read to you from Hebrews 10. It's just a beautiful explanation of that. But Hebrews 10 is also quoting Psalm 40. And Psalm 40 is a toda offering of thanksgiving. So it's just too many coincidences. It is fulfillment. The mass is called an unbloodied sacrifice because the once for all bloody sacrifice has already taken place. New life in Jesus Christ, our Jewish Messiah. If you accept that Jesus is Lord and believe that he is who he said he was and submit to baptism with water into the Trinity, then you will have a new life in Christ and you will be grafted onto the Jewish olive tree. That tree is Jesus. He's the tree of life. He has done the work of salvation on his tree, the cross. He has done all the work of salvation. So we get it free. We get a free gift by God's grace. And Paul says tonight, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This new life in Christ has to be tended to. New little plant seedlings are fragile. They're vulnerable. New life has to be tended to and nurtured. How do we do that? One way to tend it is prayer, spending time with the Lord. Just today, Pope Francis said, even death trembles when a Christian prays because death knows that everyone who prays has a stronger ally than death has. Prayer and sacraments and knowing the sacred scripture is what nurtures this new life in Christ. Knowing the scripture renews your thinking. You learn to think with the mind of God, not the eyes of the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God wants us to be transformed. What does that mean? All I could think about was those transformer toys that I used to buy my kid, my, my five sons, and, and they're called transformers. And like this one looks like a car, but then you do, they go like this and they make it and it's this. And, and it starts out as one thing, but it's transformed. It's totally changed into something different. It's transformed. Transformed. It's still the same thing, but it's been transformed. I looked it up in the dictionary. To be transformed is a verb. To make a thorough and dynamic change in the form of appearance or character. God wants to transform us. He wants to give us a new life. He wants to make us a thorough and a dramatic change in our 
character, in our inner life. So we are not conformed to this world, but we step out of the pattern of the world and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Look at this woman's Bible. Look at her notes in her Bible. I love my Bible to look like this. Just all the way your mind was transformed by reading God's word. Jesus was in the world and the world was made through Jesus, yet the world did not know him. We don't want to think like the world thinks. The world did not know Jesus, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. He wants us to prove what is the will of God. That takes a lot of spiritual discernment. To prove the will of God, you got to know how God thinks. So you have to read scripture period. I do some spiritual direction and I always am thinking in my mind of the scriptures. When I'm listening carefully to people, I'm thinking of biblical principles because you got to know the mind of God. It's a plumb line for truth. For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Again, Paul's saying, don't get cocky, don't get arrogant, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, which God has assigned him. So look at that. God has assigned people a certain measure of faith. For as in one body, we have many members and all the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are one body in Jesus Christ. We all have a different measure of faith. We all are connected. We all have the same father. We're all brothers and sisters of Christ. That makes us siblings as well. We are one body in Christ. We all eat the same food from all around the world. We all pray the same liturgy in different languages. We are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. And so anywhere you go, you can find a Catholic church. It might be in a different language, but they will be praying the same liturgy that you're praying back in your hometown. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. When you have a new life in Christ, when you are baptized, you are showered by his grace and you are given certain gifts. And those gifts are to be used. Paul says, if it's prophecy in proportion to the faith, if service in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality. I didn't know what liberality was, so I looked it up. The quality of giving or spending freely or the quality of being open to new ideas and free from prejudice. Think of the Jews and, and the, the blood atonement, and, and they had to, they couldn't be prejudiced. They had to be open and generous to, to thinking about new ideas. Could this be the Messiah? They had to be free from old prejudices. He who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Use the gifts that God has graced us with to build up his kingdom. Multiply your talents. Don't go hiding them under a rock and not let them multiply. How many souls did you help bring into the light of Christ? Paul will give lists of spiritual gifts here in Romans 12, also in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4. We'll have some more. But use your God-given gifts for edifying, affirming, building up the body of Christ. Then Paul says, the marks of true Christian living, let love be genuine. What is genuine love? It's not counterfeit. It's not a forgery or a sham or a fraud or a hoax or an imitation. It's real. Let your love be real and genuine. (laughs) 
hate what's evil, hold fast to what's good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord, never flag in zeal. What's that mean? Well, last time Paul was thinking about Elijah calling down the fire and his zeal, his great zeal for the Lord. God granted him a dramatic exit from the world without ever tasting death. Paul says, never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord. David, Paul referred to David in Romans 11. And of David, it is said that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this for David. He will increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David. David had zeal for the Lord. We saw it against Goliath. David said, zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult me fall on you. Jesus had that same zeal. Zeal for thy house consume Jesus. Never flag in zeal. Be a glow with the spirit. Serve the Lord. That means to always have passion for the Lord. Don't grow lax. Don't grow slothful. Don't get cynical or snide. Never flag in zeal. And then Paul says, rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. Then as I read this, I I started hearing St. Paul's Beatitudes. Jesus gave Beatitudes in Matthew 5, but so does Paul right here. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not harm them. Sounds like blessed are those who are persecuted in, in the Beatitudes. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Sounds like blessed are those who mourn. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Sounds like blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Never be conceited. Sounds like blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Those to me were St. Paul's Beatitudes. And then Paul alludes to the story again of David and Nabal. He did that last week when rich Nabal did not extend hospitality to Prince David or his men. David got so angry. He told every man to gird his sword and he was going to go in there with 400 men and destroy, obliterate Nabal. But beautiful wise Abigail came. She took all the blame for her churlish husband, Nabal, that means fool. She bowed before David, took all the blame, brought so many offerings of food and drink. She begged David as the prince of Israel not to take vengeance, but to leave vengeance up to the Lord so David wouldn't have blood guilt on his hands. And David had so much zeal for the Lord. Paul also had people who did not like him. Some wanted him dead. And Paul has that story in the background of his mind because he's been reading it, studying it. And he says now, repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave to the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Nabal didn't feed David. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Nabal didn't give David drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. What does that mean? You remember the story. In the morning, Abigail, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, Abigail, his wife, told him, what had happened and his heart died within him. It became a stone and within 10 days, the Lord had smote Nabal and he died a natural death. So Paul had David and Nabal on his mind. He's studying scripture. He knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so Paul ends with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling alive in us, we can have a new life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for all you're teaching us by your servant, 
Paul, and that you are that final blood sacrifice, and that because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can become a living sacrifice, and we can have a new life in Christ that can be nurtured with prayer and scripture and the sacraments and the body of Christ that you want to give us freely, voluntarily, a thanksgiving offering, a toda, when we come before you, Lord, and say thank you. Amen. That was part three of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.